Welcome to Encounter. We want nothing more than to help you find and follow Jesus. If you're a college student in Central Illinois, join us Monday nights, ISU's campus. We'd love to see you there. Oh, apparently we got a lot of Noah Khan fans that are not in the house with us tonight. You guys probably passed some of those. Good to see you, my friends. Um, If you are brand new to us tonight, let me say a couple of things to you. Uh, We believe what we're singing. I mean, the, the words that you guys were just singing out loud, this idea that there is a resurrected king who can resurrect you, Uh, Those aren't words that are just on the screen. Like, we're not just enjoying creating song time for each other here. Truly believe the God of the universe cares about you. Truly believe that you need community to live uh, a a life that has hope and peace, that you need forgiveness that you aren't going to find in any other place outside of Jesus himself. And so we don't come here uh, just out of, I don't know, because that's what we've always done before. We come with this expectation that we meet with a God who can change your life um, and, and the stuff that we're studying this semester certainly lands in that spot. So we, uh, a few weeks back, if you remember, all the way pre-break, we started a series on the Lord's Prayer, and it comes out of this really cool moment in Matthew 6. There's another passage in Luke that talks about it too, where Jesus' disciples were told by Luke, uh, say, hey, teach us how to pray. Jesus, will you teach us how to pray? John the Baptist taught his disciples how to pray. And so, um, so indeed, Jesus says, yeah, I can do that. I'll teach you how to pray. And so he looks at his disciples and he says, hey, pray like this. And he gives us the text, which is known as the Lord's Prayer. And I want us to say it together tonight, okay? Looks like this. Let's say it together. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For the kingdom, the power, and the glory are yours now and forever. Amen. Okay, looking at this prayer, you guys. First of all, I need you to remember all the way back like three weeks ago when we talked about this. Jesus does not say, pray this. He very specifically says, like they say, teach us how to pray, Jesus. And he says, okay, pray like this, which is important. That one little word like means something because it means that this is not some special magic prayer. Jesus was not saying, hey, recite this over and over again and you'll get what you want or you'll get your way. That isn't the recipe. Jesus is giving them a framework by which to pray. He's saying, hey, these are good things for you to pray. And that's why we're doing a whole series on it, because we should then pay attention to, well, what's in the prayer? Why is Jesus telling us to say things like our Father in heaven? Two weeks ago, Phil unpacked that for you guys. Beautiful. There's a sense of intimacy, and there's a sense of togetherness just in those two words, our Father. We pray this together, our Father. And Father, there is, there's this sense of relationship. There's this sense of proximity. He loves us. He knows us. Again, weeks ago, we talked about God as Abba. That, that his relationship with us. So tonight, we're going to lean into this second phrase in here, hallowed be your name. <laughs> hallowed be your name. How many of you have used the word hallowed in your uh, just conversational English today? Anybody? Nobody? No, you didn't, okay? Which tells me that's actually a pretty bad translation. 
I'm not gonna, I love the ESV, and a lot of translations will continue to use the word Hallowed. Why would they use the word Hallowed? Because that's the way everybody memorized the Lord's Prayer from the King James. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name, okay? And so when they brought it up, it was really hard to change that word because that's the way everybody had memorized the prayer. But it's not a great translation if you never use the English word ever, okay? And you don't. What's the word hallowed mean? Holy. Good job. What's the word holy mean? Hallowed. (laughs) Touche. Touche. Set apart. Okay, uh, one step further, though. What does set apart mean? Because all of these are correct. You're all very right. Hallowed. Sacred. That would be one. Like God. He truly is holy. Anybody else? Righteous. There's a sense of separation. So when we talk about something being set apart, that idea of something being holy, we don't, you guys, we don't use the word holy even all that much, let alone the word hallowed. The idea of something being holy truly does mean that you set it apart as sacred or righteous, that it it is its own thing. And I was trying to think of illustrations of this, and there just aren't many. Like my grandma had fine china that she would set out, you know, you use twice a year, these special dishes. And before she passed away, she gave it all to my wife and I. And do you know where it's been for 25 years? Stuffed in a box under our stairs. I don't know anybody my generation or younger that uses fine china anymore, let alone display. Like, we don't, we don't have holy dishes. I don't want to keep holy dishes, all right? I have a hard enough time cleaning the regular dishes that we use. Those are fine on special days. So as I was thinking about, what do we do? Like, how do we think about holy things? Well, one of them is, is we, we treat our calendar that way. If, uh, if you decide that you are going to go on vacation, you know, you're taking a four-day trip somewhere with some friends, you mark those days off on your calendar, those are holy days. I mean, that's really what the word means. They're set apart for a purpose. And so if I call you and be like, hey, do you want to get together on that Friday? You'll say, no, I can't. Like, I, I won't. I won't. I'm not going to schedule anything for those days. Those are set apart for a specific purpose. Um, we use that, that word, we, or we think about that word anyway, in the way that we talk about relationships. So if you, start, if you start seriously dating somebody, I mean, you expect that to be, if you, if you get to the point where you're like, okay, you're my boyfriend, you're my girlfriend, and those are words you're exchanging, there's some ex- exclusivity there. Um, I mean, like, I, I wear this wedding ring because there's exclu- exclusivity in my marriage, okay? So it's, it, it's, there's a holiness there to this idea that I've set myself apart for one other person, okay? And so, I, again, I don't know if I would use the word holy in the sense for me in that, but you understand that idea of it's set apart for a specific purpose. We've decided that this isn't common the way that we would use everything else, but there aren't a lot of things in our culture now that we treat that way. So when we talk about hallowed be your name. We're saying holy is your name, God. You are different. You are other. You're set apart. You're uncommon. You are righteous. You are sacred. You're different. You're not an everyday common thing. You are unique in the universe. And I want you to understand Jesus begins his prayer with this. I mean, our Father who art in heaven, your name is holy, God. This is the way he starts his prayer. Why? Well, when we look at other scripture, the main thing that I could bring out to you in terms of a representation of what scripture tries to tell you about the God of the universe, it uses this metaphor. It uses light over and over and over again. John's the one who likes to do it the most, I think, but it's all over the place. Jesus talks about himself this way. 
These are Jesus' words. He spoke to the people once more and said, I am the light of the world. If you follow me, you won't have to walk in darkness because you'll have the light that leads to life. As Jesus talking about himself. And here again in John 12, Jesus replied, my light will shine for you just a little longer. Walk in the light while you can so the darkness will not overtake you. James, every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of heavenly lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. He's light. And 1 John, John writes again, this is the message we heard from Jesus and now declare to you. God is light and there is no darkness in him at all. So why the metaphor? What's, what are they trying to get across here? What is Jesus trying to say about his own character? Man, I hope I can sum this up because it's, it's really hard to do philosophically. Light, in the way that we're talking about it here, is just absolutely pure. I mean, we're talking about the idea of light, not these lights where you look around the room and you're like, I don't know, it's kind of bright and it's kind of dark in here. No, we're talking about the principle of light itself, as if I could hold pure light in my hand right now. And in that pure light, you can't add 1% of darkness to it or it stops being light, okay? So it's it's just pure light. And God says, that's what I'm like. So sometimes when we talk about sin, like when we use that church word, when we talk about death and decay and the things that make up sin, I think that we look at it in the wrong way. We look at it and we say, oh, that's, that's stuff that God doesn't like. As if he could change his mind. And if God could just be okay with sin, then all of this would be better. You guys, it's not that, that, that God doesn't like sin. It's, God, it's that God is the opposite of sin. Sin is anti-God. It is everything that he is not. I mean, look at what James tells us here. All good and perfect things on this earth come from him. Everything that is beautiful that you have experienced in this world, it's an imitation of his holiness and his bigness and his goodness and his power. And every bit of pain you have felt on this earth is the opposite of that. It is the opposite of God, the anti-God. You understand? It's It's not just that he hates it. It's that he isn't it. He can't be it. He can't be near it. His holiness won't allow that. He sits at odds with death and sin and pain. It isn't him. So then we're given this picture that feels very different than what Phil preached two weeks ago. Phil's talking about this dad who wants to be close. He's talking about our proximity to each other. Why would Jesus start this prayer with our father, our father, intimate, close, holy is your name, distant, other, separated, righteous, powerful, sacred, set apart. Doesn't it feel like those are a little bit at odds with each other? I hope you feel that tonight because they're, they're not supposed to be at odds, but there is a tension that sits there that we need to address together of who God is and his holiness. So let me walk a little bit back through history, okay? Because if you're not super familiar uh, with the Bible, and I'm hoping that this will be just a little bit enlightening for you. Um, If you go back all the way into Genesis, okay, the beginning of the scriptures, we have God who makes a promise to Abraham, okay? He makes a covenant with Abraham. And then you fast forward through toward the end of Genesis, and you get to Exodus, and we get to another promise that God makes with Moses. And, you know, the whole story of him rescuing the Hebrew people out of out of Egypt. I need you to understand something. Moses didn't know who God was. 
He, he wasn't familiar with him. As a matter of fact, the whole burning bush inst, you know, episode that we have in Moses' life, when, uh, when Moses runs into God in that moment, he doesn't really know who he's talking to. He's heard stories about the promise, you know, Abraham's God, the promise and covenant that, that God had made with Abraham. But when God says to Moses, hey, I need you to go into Egypt and rescue the Hebrew people, do you remember Moses' response? He's, I mean, he starts with like, I don't think I can do that. And God's like, well, it's not really your power that's going to be doing it anyway. I don't really need your power. And Moses is like, I, I don't know. God, he's having this back and forth with God being like, I don't know, God. I don't know if this is what I should do. And then finally he says, okay, God, if you perform all these signs and they say to me what God is, is performing these signs, what am I supposed to say? What's your name? <laughs> you guys, Moses doesn't even know. What's, what am I supposed to tell them? And that's when God says, I am. You tell them that I am sent you. That's all they need to know. Moses and the Hebrew people, I might add, didn't really know God. They didn't know his character. They didn't know who he was. And so God in that moment gives them, and this is why the Old Testament gets real hard to read sometimes, he gives them law after law after law after law. Why? Because he loves rules? No. I used to think that. He gives them law after law after law after law to introduce them to his holiness again because they did not know what that was. They didn't know how to approach him. They didn't understand him. Let me give you one example. Okay? I think this is fascinating. You can fight me on this, okay? If you're bored to tears in five minutes, just raise your hand. I'll move on, okay? This is the tabernacle in the Old Testament. This is a... Yeah, yeah! Then this is a bunch of the laws that God gave Moses revolve around the tabernacle in the Old Testament. This is the only time that we have in Scripture where God says, hey, this is very specifically the way that I want you to do church. This is exactly what I want it to look like. Here's what the building should be like. Here's the way the priests should dress. Here are the materials that it should be made out of. Here is the blueprints. I want you to make it to this size. These are the pe- when the people are wandering, okay? And so it has to be portable. And so it's about a half of a football field, maybe just a little bit smaller than that. That outside wall, it's like this canvas wall that they put up. The inside of it is this longer building that has two separate places in it. Now, here's what I want you to understand. When the people of God came to worship, they would walk through this area right here, the outer gate, and they would come to the altar of sacrifice. That would be the very first thing. And they had to bring a sacrifice with them. It could be very small. It could be a larger animal. But there was some sort of animal sacrifice to remind them that their sin had a cost. Anybody could come through that gate. Anybody could stay in this outside area. Altar sacrifice. That, the altar of sacrifice right there. The bronze basin is a washing basin that sat right on the other side of it. It was for purity. The priests mostly would wash their hands there. Now the priests could go in that inner building to the holy place. And it had two rooms. And the first room had uh, the altar of incense, which represented the prayers of God's people. It had the table of showbread with 12 loaves of bread on it that represented the 12 tribes. The priests could eat that bread. It had a golden lampstand, which kind of represented the presence of God and also the prayers that was, that was lit. It also provided light for that room. And then there was a curtain. And on the other side of that curtain 
The priests couldn't go. And what was there was the Ark of the Covenant. If you've ever seen Indiana Jones, okay? Ark of the Covenant in that spot represented the presence of God. One priest was allowed to go in there once per year to offer atonement for the sins of God's people. Okay? Why? You're like, man, Ben, this is real Old Testament-y. Yeah. Why did God do all of that stuff? Because he needed to introduce to his people, I am not common. You don't waltz into my presence. I'm not your buddy. I am not your peer. (laughs) Like, I'm not the guy who's riding shotgun in your life. There is power and there is holiness in a way that you should respect. And we don't talk like that a lot within the church. We talk about God being very close and proximate, which is true. But he needed to teach his people, to remind his people about how holy he is, how holy he was. If you walked into the most holy place without doing what you're supposed to be doing, it was a death sentence, dead. God was like, I need you to remember that you don't waltz into my presence. I need you to remember that I'm holy. I need you to remember that I'm other. Now, the Jewish people learned this lesson a little too well, if if I'm being honest, because the idea here was not God saying, I'm not approachable. It was not that. He was not saying, I'm approachable. He was saying, I'm the one who provides the path. I'm the one who provides the path. And so he gave the Hebrew people a path to be close to him. This is how you walk the path to get close to me. He gives us through the tabernacle, which was such a gift to them. But the Jewish people learned the wrong lesson. The lesson that they learned was, you don't come close. You can't come close. They had such reverence for God, and they learned this holiness lesson so well. Do you know, I mean, you're familiar with the word Yahweh? If we talk about Yahweh as a, um, as a, as a title for God, the Jewish people would abbreviate that Y-H-W-H. They wouldn't use vowels because they didn't believe, they were so reverent of the name of God that they didn't want to actually use the name of God, so much so that we don't know the original spelling or pronunciation. It's been lost through time because they refused to write it. When I was uh, doing research for this sermon, I was actually reading uh, a, a website, blog thing, I don't know, written, uh, written by an Orthodox Jew, and everywhere it had the word God, Um, It was G hyphen D. He still to this day would not write the word God in its entirety. He'd put a hyphen where the O was supposed to be, wouldn't use the vowels. Out of a sense of reverence, out of a sense of holiness. But I want you to hear today, I, I don't think that's what God was asking. I don't think that was the lesson that he was trying to teach, that you can't come close to me, that you can't say my name, that you can't speak my name, that you can't, like I don't want you near me is not the lesson. The lesson was, I'm the one who provides the path to me. And in fact, if he didn't want a path to him, it would have been ridiculous to give them all these instructions. But he did, because he loves us. So when we sing tonight, I mean, we're singing, show us your glory, show us your glory, let every heart be burnt, holy ground, is that what we sang? Let every heart be holy ground. There is this sense of what we're singing in the same way that says, God, we want to experience your holiness, your size, your awe, your wonder, your power. And it's such a good thing for us to sing, but do you know what you're asking for? For the perfect, holy God of the universe? 
You guys, there is a moment, we have a handful in, in Scripture, there's a moment um, where we do have somebody who is allowed to come via a vision into the presence of God. It happens in Isaiah. Let's read this together. Or I'll read it. You can just listen. You don't have to repeat it. Okay. It was in the year King Uzziah died that I saw the Lord. He was sitting on a lofty throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Okay. Get a picture of this, because I'm going to read it fast, but I need you to understand the grandeur of this. He's in the temple of God, this giant, ornate building, and the train of God's, God's sitting on his throne, and the train of his robe is so large that it fills the entire temple, walls, everything. I mean, like that, there's just this picture of, Isaiah's having a hard time describing to us what's happening. Attending him were mighty seraphim, those are angels, each having six wings. That's terrifying, by the way. With two wings they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet, and with two they flew. And they were calling out to each other, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of heaven's armies. The whole earth is filled with his glory. Their voices shook the temple to its foundations, and the entire building was filled with smoke. Catch a little glimpse of the power, even in the beings that are worshiping him. And then I said, this is Isaiah talking, it's all over. I'm doomed. For I am a sinful man, and I have filthy lips, and I live among a people with filthy lips, and yet I have seen the King, the Lord of heaven's armies. And then one of the seraphim flew to me with a burning coal he had taken from the altar with a pair of tongs, and he touched my lips with it and said, see, this coal's touched your lips. Now your guilt is removed, and your sins are forgiven. And then I heard the Lord asking, whom should I send as a messenger to this people? Who will go for us? And I said, here I am, send me. You guys, when we come into contact with God's holiness, his awesomeness, his bigness, this is a very rational and normal response. Truly, it really is. When you see God in his perfection, it shines a light on your imperfection. And it's not a, it's not a bad place to start in prayer, and it's not a bad place to start in worship with Wow, God, I see myself right now. I see the sins I've committed this week. I see the wrong things I've thought. Not out of a sense of shame. That's a whole different thing. It's not, God, I'm awful. It's, God, I'm not like you. Staring at his holiness creates that in us. There's a beautiful moment in Luke 5. I don't have a lot of time to do it justice tonight, but the same thing happens with Peter when Jesus does a miracle for the very first time right in front of Peter, Peter's response is to say, go away, Jesus, because I'm a sinful man. And Jesus barely even acknowledges it. He's like, get up, Peter. We gotta get, we're going to go fishing for men. You're not fishing for fish anymore. You're fishing for men. That's a common and an okay response, but we don't stay there. God hasn't asked us to live in shame. He's called us to experience his holiness, his goodness, who he is. And Isaiah shows us this typical path to God. We recognize that we aren't worthy. God makes us worthy. He puts us back on our feet, and he's like, hey, kid, we got work to do. Like, I appreciate the fact that you are recognizing you're not pure, but I can make you pure. And he puts us back on our feet again, and he sends us on. That's what God does for us. Um. This, I think, is why this verse makes so much sense. It confused me for so long. 
But the Hebrews author tells us, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. How could we possibly come before that throne that Isaiah describes with confidence? We should be trembling, right? Well, we come with confidence because as sons and daughters, we have Jesus' grace. We have his grace to help us in, time, in our time of need. That's what he's done. Listen, the law that I talked about that was given through Moses, that part with the tabernacle, all of that stuff, that path that God gave us was an imperfect path, and God knew it from the start. It wasn't supposed to be the path back to God. It was supposed to be a whisper of understanding his holiness. Listen, I'm going to give you one verse or two verses from the New Testament, but it's all over. The law of Moses was unable to save us because of the weakness of our sinful nature. So God did what the law could not do. He sent his own son in a body, like the bodies we sinners have, and in that body God declared an end to sin's control over us by giving us his son as a sacrifice. He did this so the requirement of the law would be fully satisfied for us who no longer follow our sinful nature, but instead follow the Holy Spirit. That's Romans 8, 3, and 4. Do you hear what Paul is saying? He's saying, oh, there's a better path. The law was never intended to be the right path. It was always intended to be Jesus. It was always intended to be the intoning sacrifice of Christ in our lives. He says it differently in Philippians. He says it this way, I no longer count on my own righteousness through obeying the law. Rather, I become righteous through faith in Christ for God's way of making us right with himself depends on faith. So here, I, man, if you've, if you've vegged out on me for a minute, come back with me for this little point, okay? The theological terms for this are imparted or imputed righteousness. I prefer the term borrowed righteousness. You do not have a righteousness or a holiness that comes on your own. It doesn't belong to you. Jesus, his righteousness, his perfect life, he chose to drape around your shoulders and call it yours. That's why his death and burial and resurrection matter so much. That's why we get to celebrate that on Easter weekend, because your resurrection is tied to his resurrection. The tabernacle, all of that, that old worship, it just wasn't good enough. It wasn't meant to be good enough. It was meant to point toward Jesus. You need his borrowed righteousness. You can't do enough stuff to make God happy with you. You hear me? You can't. You can try. You'll be miserable. We have a righteousness that comes from Christ that we borrow that he drapes around us like a beautiful blanket. So here's the problem. Here's the tension that sits in this. If you only focus on God's holiness, which some of us are prone to do, you are only ever going to see yourself as a worm in his presence because you're like, I'm not worthy. I see his holiness, and I just, I have to be down here, and I can't do, I can't have no other posture. And that's, that's what happens if we only focus on his holiness. If we only focus on his grace and his love and his mercy, then it's buddy Jesus. He's like, ah, he's, he's okay. He's okay with whatever I do, right? And there are a lot of things in Christianity that you have to hold in tension, and this is one, that our Father is intimate with us, and he loves us. But oh, goodness, he is holy and not like me powerful. There are a handful of things that capture this in Scripture, but I thought I'd kind of reach for a different one tonight, a different tool. 
because I think one of the best examples of this comes out of the Chronicles of Narnia. So I'm going to read you a little section, okay? If you aren't familiar, <clears throat> there's talking animals in Narnia. So it, otherwise, if I don't warn you, that might get a little weird, okay? But in the story, there are these children who visit a magical place through a wardrobe. I can't give you backstory on this. It's impossible, okay? <clears throat> but in this, Aslan is a representation of Jesus and God. And Lucy and Susan and Peter and Edmund are these little British kids who visit this magical land and get swept away by all of this stuff, okay? So there's a battle between the witch in Narnia and Aslan. So Susan right now is talking to Mr. and Mrs. Beaver. I'm going to bring you up to speed. Here we go. Who is Aslan? asked Susan. Aslan, said Mr. Beaver. Why don't you know? He's the king. He's the lord of the whole wood. But he's not often here, you understand, never in my time or in my father's time. But the word has reached us that he has come back. He's in Narnia at this moment, and he'll settle the white queen all right. It's he, not you, that will save Mr. Tumnus. That's their friend who was kidnapped. She won't turn him into stone too, Edmund said. Lord love you. Excuse me, son of Adam. What a simple thing to say answered Mr. Beaver with a great laugh. Turn him into stone? If she can stand on her two feet and look him in the face, it'll be the most she can do, and I expect more of her. No, no, he'll put all to rights. As it says in an old rhyme, wrong will be right when Aslan comes in sight. At the sound of his roar, sorrows will be no more, and when he bears his teeth, winter meets its death, and when he shakes his mane, we shall have spring again. You'll understand when you see him. But shall we see him? asked Susan. Why, daughter of Eve, that's what I brought you here for. I'm to lead you where you shall meet him, said Mr. Beaver. Is, is he a man? asked Lucy. Aslan a man, said Mr. Beaver sternly. Certainly not. I tell you, he's the king of the wood, the son of the great emperor beyond the sea. Don't you know who's the king of beasts? Aslan is a lion, the lion, the great lion. Oh, said Susan. I thought he was a man. Is he safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. That you will, dearie, and make no mistake, said Mrs. Beaver. If there's anyone who can appear before Aslan without their knees knocking, they're either braver than most or else just silly. Then he isn't safe, said Lucy. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Don't you hear what Mrs. Beaver tells you? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. Do you hear that line? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good, and he's the king. And what Lewis is trying to hone in on in that moment is this idea of holiness. He's powerful. He has a power beyond what you guys can fathom or understand. The the greatest miracle that you can imagine in your life is a fraction of what our God can do just revealed in our little virtual 3D realm, okay? I don't know what he, I don't think our brains can expand far enough to understand what our God is capable of. And so when we look at his holiness as we pray, it it does this thing where it expands our understanding of what the God of the universe can do, and it puts your little obstacles in perspective. And the things that you are scared of are scared of him. Do you understand that? Let me say that one more time. The things that you are scared of are scared of him. 
That's how big he is. He isn't safe. He is good. (laughs) His holiness is what brings us to that. And it's appropriate for us to stare that in the eyes. Now, there's one last thing I want to give you tonight that I haven't talked about yet, because Scripture talks about this idea that we're supposed to be holy as our Father is holy. Matter of fact, in Matthew 5, Jesus says it this way, be perfect like your heavenly Father is perfect. And you're like, wait, Ben, we're supposed to be perfect? Yeah. You're not going to succeed, but you are supposed to try. And that's the other thing that, that holiness does for us. When we, when we see God's holiness and when we, when we take it in, we begin to reflect it. We begin to want to. It begins to burn out some of the things in my life that I don't want to imitate anymore. I'm supposed to be holy like he is holy. And that's why it is a beautiful thing to come into worship and see God's holiness and say, God, you know what? There's wrong stuff in my life. Burn it away. Thank you for your forgiveness. Let me live as a free daughter of yours, as a free son of yours this week again. What a privilege that is. Not in shame, again, not groveling at his feet, coming in confidence, as the Hebrews author says, in front of the throne of grace, in front of the throne of holiness, because he gives us that privilege. We're told when Moses came off the mountain, Exodus 34, I'll check it in a second, and he had been in contact with God. Do you remember what happened? The people were freaked out because his face was shining. I don't mean he was like happy. I mean he, his face reflected the presence of God so much that the people were like, could you put a veil over your face, please? Could you cover yourself with a hood because you're freaking us out? Literally, Moses had to walk around with a sack on his head because the people were too afraid to see the reflection of God left on his face. When you come into contact with God's holiness, it rubs off on you. You start to look a little more like him. It's this beautiful thing. This, I, I shared last semester, I think, um, there's a, a friend of a friend I have been praying for. He has a, a, a type of blood cancer. And so I just get updates through a friend of mine that says, hey, can you pray again? And I got another one of those updates yesterday. And, and I feel like it had so much to do with where I'm at tonight that I, I want to read this to you because this is a dude who's been struggling with life or death for the last year. And it has taken him into sweet and beautiful times with Jesus. And so I want to give you these, just the update I got last night. The lessons I have learned over the past year have been precious. In July, God taught me that he's the true provider, and I'm just a steward. That was humbling, something I knew in my head, but it was painful to learn it in my heart. Last fall, I learned that I don't have to have a preference as to whether I live or die. Desiring one result over the other is not more spiritual. Choosing to serve God in either case and trust his sovereign decision is. He's a good, good father. The bouts of insomnia, that's been more recent for him. He can't sleep have taught me how to pray, to stay and revel in God's presence for hours on end rather than shoot up a quick grocery list of requests. Finally, returning to work has shown a light on some sin that I've been sheltering in my heart. I've always grappled with a proud and rebellious nature. I've confessed this privately and over the pulpit, and yet perversely I've always given this bitter root space to grow. Somehow I had convinced myself that this was just who I am. It's part of my nature. Frankly, I didn't know who I would be if my character changed, so I permitted that sin to stay so long as I kept a leash on it. 
and acknowledged its existence as wrong. Somewhere over the last months, in the middle of sleepless nights while spending time in God's presence, read His holiness. I've come to hate my pride. Not just dislike and trust it, but hate it. When I consider how beautiful the Father is, how loving my Lord and Savior Jesus is, and the sweet power of the Holy Spirit, it's absurd that I would ever claim anything over which to be proud. In light of God's glory, it's the height of arrogance to adopt any attitude other than a fully humble submission. I am so thankful for MDS, that's his blood cancer, because that's what it took to shine the light of truth on the sin in my heart and finally take steps to eradicate it. I would rather die humbled than live proud. If you're reading this and see yourself in the story, please pray that the Holy Spirit could teach you from my experience. I wouldn't wish cancer on anyone, but God used it to diagnose a deeper problem, that of a prideful heart. If you're harboring a sinful tendency because that's just who you are, I beg that you rethink your position, confess your sin for what it is, seek forgiveness, and take steps to humbly move past it. We will all face the consequences of what we permit in our lives. If MDS has taught me anything, it's that I'd rather painfully purge my sinful heart than walk another step with my sin hindering my communion with my God. You guys, a recognition of God's holiness will take you to crazy places. It'll draw you to forgiveness where you're like, man, God, I need forgiveness for this. It'll draw you to a space of awe and wonder where you're like, man, God, I can't believe how big you are. It'll draw you to a sense of empowerment where you're like, I can't believe that you have empowered me, that the same spirit that raised Jesus Christ from the dead has been given to me, that, that you have made me like you, God. It'll draw you to care about others because you see the holiness of God in them. It's a beautiful way to start praying. It's a beautiful way to begin worshiping. And if we see it in its proper form, it is a path back to the Father, not a wall that separates us from Him because He's given us the pathway through Christ. So as you pray and as you worship, pray that you'd experience the holiness of God, His power, his sacredness, his set-apartedness. So much bigger than we give him credit for on an average day. Pray with me. Father, just a taste. Uh, more than that would probably be too much for us to handle, but just a taste of your size and your scope, I pray that you'd introduce into our lives. Thank you for the few that are here tonight, Jesus. I pray that you'd help us to ingest this, really, to understand you for who you are and your character and nature for who they are. Thank you for the path to you. Because I think if we caught a glimpse of this holiness without it, God, we would just assume that you are too other for us to even come close to. So thank you for the path. And we praise you, Christ, as that path. Thanks for listening. Find out more about Encounter and ways to get involved at isuencounter.org.